Well, welcome back tonight as we continue our series through the book of James. This uh, evening we're um, back in, the, in, in chapter 2. So we talk about living the royal law. Living the royal law. But uh, let's uh, pray together again before we get started tonight. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us now to feel, Lord, the beauty, but also the weight and the seriousness of the royal law, the law of love. And I pray tonight, Lord, that you would help us be those who truly do obey those greatest commandments, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors ourselves. So I pray, Lord, that you just have your way in our midst tonight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, uh, as I mentioned, you can turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We're going to be talking about living the royal law. When Jesus, uh, the, the night before his crucifixion, he was talking with his disciples, teaching his disciples. The most extended discussion about what happened that night is in the book of John. And John records that Jesus said this to his disciples in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, if you think about it, it's kind of strange that he would call that the new commandment because it seems that, um, that the command to love one another is not all that new. But I think at least part of what is going on here is that Jesus understands that as he said, the, this love that he's commanded to is, is the fulfillment, the heart, the essence of what we are to do as Christians, of how we are to live as Christians. Jesus fulfilled the old in, in, in order to really do bring in something new, the law of love from the heart. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more tonight um, as we uh, hear this sermon. But uh, now just let me uh, invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word from James chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. James 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of God. You may be seated. I want to talk about three things tonight. The heart of the law, the unity of the law, and the judgment of the law. 
the heart of the law, the unity of the law, and the judgment of the law. First, the heart of the law. In verses 8 and 9 there, uh, what is happening is that James is continuing. He, really here what he's, he's doing is he's continuing his discussion on partiality uh, that we started last uh, week. And so if you remember last week, uh, we discussed two major reasons that James gives for why we should not show partiality, and especially in, in this example, uh, partiality between those of different socioeconomic classes. And the reason, he says, is because number one is that God has a special care for the poor, and we are to be careful to view and see others the way God does. And number two, and a little more practically, James says that it doesn't really make sense to show partiality to the rich because very often it is the rich and powerful who exploit and abuse and sue and flex their wealth and power in order to gain more wealth and power, often at the cost of others. And so really what James here is doing in our passage is giving us a final reason about why we should show partiality, namely that it violates the law of love which is the heart of the law. And so let's just kind of walk through those, those verses there, verses 8 and 9. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So first of all, he says that we're to fulfill the royal law. And, and as we said before, most likely here, what James means is he's viewing the law as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You know, it, it would be very problematic if James was saying that Christians should keep the whole entirety of the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law, because he'd, he'd, be, he'd be explicitly contradicting Paul. But almost certainly that's what not, James is not talking about here. James, James is talking about the law as fulfilled, as completed in Jesus Christ, as are, there are... Our duties and responsibilities as those who have been saved by Jesus Christ the Messiah who fulfilled the old covenant in order to bring in the new covenant. So that we're not saved, we're not, we, we, don't, we don't have to become Jews to be saved, but we have to be, have uh, faith in Jesus Christ and circumcision not of the flesh but of the heart to become followers, to be saved, become followers of Jesus Christ. And, and James here refers to the law as the royal law. And I think maybe one of the best ways to understand that is he's, uh, is, and, and, and it goes along with our understanding of what we just said about the law, and that is that he's, he, he's calling the law royal in the, in, in the sense of making it uh, or telling us that it's with reference to the kingdom, the law of the kingdom. That's what royal means. It's a, it's a kingly law. And the way we know that it's, a, it's, a little, it's clearer in the original language because... And the, the adjective royal in Greek is basilikos, and the, the term kingdom in Greek is basileia. So it's a lot easier to see the connection there in the original language. He's, he's, he's putting the law in, the, in reference to the kingdom, and we know that the kingdom was one of Christ's uh, central teachings. In fact, it was the centerpiece of his teaching. Jesus understood that he came to bring in the kingdom of God to to uh, fulfill all that had been written and to usher in the full and final kingdom of God where God reigns with his people forever. And, and he's the king. 
He's the heir of David. He's the one who God promised to David who would sit on his throne and over his kingdom and over his people forever. Jesus came to fulfill the law and bring in the new covenant and sit on his throne as king. And so, even though we're not bound explicitly by the old covenant, we are bound, uh, the Bible teaches, by the law of love. Which captures the essence of the law. That, that is the very heart of it. And Jesus, and Jesus made that pretty plain. They asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said, this is the, this is, this is the law and the prophets. In other words, if you do those two things, you got it. <laughs> You got it. If you love the Lord your God with all that you are, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, that is you really make an effort to put yourself in their shoes and on the basis of biblical love and biblical wisdom, what would be the, what would be the, what would be the right way to treat them in their circumstance that, that you would want to be treated if you were in their circumstance? If you do that, you are fulfilling the law of love, the royal law. And James says, if you do that, you're doing well. You do well. James says, however, that if you, if you don't do that, and in this case, if you, if you show partiality, you are violating, he says, the, the royal law, the law of love, and you become a transgressor. You become a transgressor. The, the word transgressor there is uh is used virtually as a, it's a technical term uh it's not just a general sinner but it's it's most of the time it's used as a technical term of someone who is explicitly who has violated an explicit command in other words what he's saying is that when you when you break the law at any point but but in this particular case partiality you are you are Breaking the law of love. You are not treating, you're not love, when you show partiality, you're not loving God with all that you are. And you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You, you have violated the law of love and therefore you are a transgressor. You are in the category of transgressor. And so what will happen then is that the law of love itself will testify against us on the last day. That we did not love our neighbor as ourselves. That we did not love God with all that we are. So how can we how can we uh, apply this? Well, as we talked about before, I think it's important to understand uh, because that, cause I think it's confusing to many people. That but many people think that the Old Testament law was harsh and strict. You know, that, oh, you know, forget about all that. Just give me Jesus. You know, nice blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, and. But in reality, as we talked about before, the New Testament, in, in far ways, in some ways, in some ways, in the dietary ceremonial stuff, but the, the actual ethic, the actual moral ethic of, the, of Christianity, of the New Testament, is stricter than the Old Testament law. Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, Jesus didn't come to relax morality. He came to intensify it. In Christ, 
the cultural, political, and national trappings of the law that were supposed to delineate Israel from the other nations, they're removed because that wasn't the, that wasn't the, the essence, that wasn't the point. The heart of the law, its essence, its core, are the ways in which we reflect God's own moral righteousness. And it is those things that, are, that Jesus came not to soften or weaken, but to actually intensify. Because what Jesus does is he, he comes and he makes clear and he makes explicit that it's not merely the action that's the problem. It's the heart behind the action that's the problem. It's not merely that, yes, murdering's a problem, he says in the text we just read. But he said, if you're angry, you'll be liable to judgment. Why? Because it's the heart that you have that makes you want to kill somebody. That's the problem. And if the, and if you, and if you, if the only, let's say you could kill somebody if you could get away with it, but the only thing keeping you to, from doing it is because you know you can't get away with it. Guess what? You're a murderer. Jesus says. And in the same way, in the same way, it's the heart that's behind it. And Jesus said the same thing, for example, about lust. He said, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery with her. And so what, what Jesus is, is, he, is he takes the law actually more seriously because it's not just about the external action, but it's about the condition of our heart. And so as Christians, we just must take that, we just must think deeply about that. And we must work and... And labor to not just address to not just address external acts of sin, but to also address the conditions of our hearts. Right? It, it, it's not just that I can do something, but I can if I do it with the wrong heart, it's sin. Paul said, "Everything that does not proceed from faith is sin." I can do a kind deed, for example, but guess what? It could be flattery. It could be trying to butter someone up so I can get something out of them later. People do it all the time. Right? It's about the heart. It's about the heart. Our, our, our Christian ethic has to go deeper. Same things with our kids, right? We should beware just trying to make our kids moral. You could be perfectly moral and go to hell. We should care not just about the morality of our kids, but their hearts. And we should speak to the hearts of our kids and get, and get, and, and get to them thinking in terms of why do I act the way that I do? Why do, you know, what, not just what did I do, but what caused me to do that? What was I feeling? What was, I, what, what was my thought process? And help them see that the problem is sin and our sin nature. And also, I think, another way we can apply this is to, is to just recognize that we as Christians, we must go... Beyond the morality. So, so what the, basically what this does is James is trying to do is he's trying to get us to just to get it to feel more of the seriousness of sin. To feel the seriousness of sin. If we break the law of love, we I mean, we're rejecting the heart and the essence of the law. If we don't have a right heart about something and acting out of love for God and love for neighbor, then we are transgression. He's trying to get us to feel the weight of that. And so another way we can apply this is that it's to just remember, too, that. We as Christians, we must go beyond the morality that simply says, you know, can I do this or this? Or, or, or here's a popular question, how far is too far? All right? Can I do this? Can I do that? How far is too far? When, 
But the thing is, is if we're just if we're if our primary focus is just on the external behavior itself, we're actually missing the whole point. If the questions that we're really asking are how much sin can I get away with and it be okay, or how close can I get to sin and it be okay, or how much temptation can I place into my life without actually sinning? If those are the questions that we're really asking, then what? Are we, then we have already violated the law of love. Because, we're, because those kind of questions, sh- is it, is, if I'm asking how much temptation can I get into my life without actually sinning, I'm not loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. I'm not, I'm not even loving me well if I do that. I'm putting myself in, the, in, the, in, the, in temptation and sin. And so we have to go beyond that to an ethic that deals with our heart. We have to ask ourselves, we have to ask ourselves the right questions, deeper questions, like, not just like, is this okay, but can I love God by doing this? Can I, can I do this with a right heart as an expression of my love to God? If I did this, would it be an act flowing from my heart of love for God or neighbor? Can I, can I do this in a way that's going to glorify God and am I doing it that way? 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's a command. If you don't eat, bless God, your Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich to the glory of God, you're sinning. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. You better thank God like I do for that Chick-fil-A sandwich. Because I'm on a diet right now, and I want one really bad. But seriously, that sounds super spiritual, but it's a command. If you, anything, anything you do, is even as eating food, Paul says, you better do it to the glory of God. This is the law of love. As Christians, we are held to a greater standard, not one of mere external righteousness, but of internal righteousness of the heart and of our conscience. So number one, the heart of the law, and number two, the unity of the law. The unity of the law, verses 10 and 11. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, again here, James is James is he's trying to get us to feel... The seriousness of our sin. He's trying to help these, these, these brothers who apparently were showing partiality within their gatherings. And he's trying to help them see like, he's trying to help them feel the weight of this. And, and, what, and what he does here to, to try to do that is he's appealing to the unity of the law. And that is, he says, to break, to break God's standard of moral righteousness at one point. At one point is to make you culpable or liable to the whole thing. And that, of course, that requires some explanation. So what's James talking about? I think it's this. The ultimate reason for the unity of the law and the reason why that if you break the law at one point, it makes you culpable for all of it, is this. And that is that the entirety of the law has a single lawgiver. The entirety of the law has a single lawgiver. And that's, that's the argument that he makes there. Um, in verse 11, he says, what's the reason why we're accountable to all of it? That's what, in verse 11, he says, 
for or because he who said do not murder or do not uh, uh, do not murder do not commit adultery also said do not murder he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder that's the reason the reason why if you if you break the law at one point you're liable to all of it is because it, the same person gave every commandment there is one God of the law and so Sometimes we as Christians, we fall into the trap, and this is a great, a great misconception, even within the church, especially without the church, of, of thinking that Christianity is just nothing more than a list of rules to follow. In other words, there's a list of things that Christians do and don't do, and if I keep that list, I, I'm a good Christian. I got it. That's it. That's what Christian. That's what Christianity is. Some, just about every other religion's like that, actually. You do X, Y, and Z, boom, you got it. Christianity's not like that. Christianity is not, uh, the basis of Christianity is not a list of rules. It's a person named Jesus Christ. Christianity is a covenant relationship with Almighty God. If you're a Christian, that's what you have. A covenant relationship with Almighty God. So it's not just a list of rules. And the Bible says that our relationship to God is akin to marriage. In fact, it says that explicitly. In fact, Paul says that the reason God created marriage was to show us what our relationship to God is supposed to be like. And that is that it is a covenant relationship to God. And so you see, understanding that way, if we understand it rightly, we see that Christianity, of course, is, is much more than a list of rules. I could make a list of rules about what makes my wife happy. And if I say, my marriage is me keeping this list of rules, that's a problem. Serious problem. But that's how some people put, treat Christianity. That's not what it is. It's not keeping a list of rules. It's a relationship with a person. Now, of course, relationships should, can, must change you. And if you love someone, you'll want to please them. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But it's not a list of rules. It's a relationship with a person. And when we understand it in this way, what we see is that breaking God's law is not just breaking some kind of written code that's just sitting out there somewhere on a sheet of paper. Breaking God's law is not just breaking some written code, is violating our relationship with Jesus Christ. So it's much more than just breaking a rule. It is hurting, wounding, denying, rejecting a person. And since, and this is important, you, you, just, you have to listen carefully here. Since God's commands flow out of his own moral character, our disobedience to his commands is an implicit rejection of an aspect of God's being. Let me say that again. Since God's commands flow out of his own moral character, who he is morally, since God's commands flow out of his own moral character, disobedience to his commands is an implicit rejection of an aspect of, of who God is. Of his own being. It is to say with your actions that God is flawed. 
In other words, it's blasphemy. When, see, when, when you see it right, when you see it that way, it makes perfect sense that when you break the law then, no matter at which point in which you break it, you're culpable to all of it. How? Because you're rejecting God. In every case, you're rejecting God. The same, since the same person gives each individual command, breaking any single one of them is a rejection of that same person. Now, to be clear here, so there's no confusion, I don't think, I don't think what James is intending to communicate, that all, that all sin is equally serious. And sometimes we say that, all sin is equally serious. Well, the answer to that is yes and no, right? It's a little more complicated than that. All sin is equally serious in the sense of what James is talking about. It all makes us liable, culpable to God. It all renders us as a transgressor. It all puts us in the category of I need mercy. I need forgiveness. But not all sins are, I think it's quite obvious, are equal in terms of their penalties and their effects. Right? We, and you see this in the Old Testament. I mean, even in the Old Testament law, not every violation of the law received the same penalty. God recognizes that even though, so like humanly speaking, in, in, in earthly categories, you know, the lusting is, is it's the, the heart of it is the same. And so we're culpable to the same degree in that. But in terms of outward and external effects, of course, committing adultery actually has much more serious consequences. Right, so we know that we know that intuitively. So it's 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 a little oversimplistic to say all sin is equally serious. But what James is saying here is he's saying that all sin, regardless, puts us in the category of transgressor, someone who has willfully broken the law of love, and we are liable to him. So how can we apply this? I think one way just to feel what James is saying is he's trying to get us to take our sin seriously. And so what we need to do is we need to be careful not to fall into the trap of justifying our sins. And there's lots of ways we do this, try to justify our sins. Uh, Nine times out of ten, the way we do that is we say, well, so-and-so made me do it. If they hadn't have said that to me, if they hadn't have bowed up at me, if they hadn't have treated me that way, if they, if they hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have sinned. You going to tell that to God? Is that really what you're going to tell him? Adam tried that. The woman you gave me, she made me do it. Doesn't work. Right? We try to justify our sins. Sometimes, and I've been really thinking about this a lot. I, I, just, I feel like I want to, I don't know, maybe write a blog post or something about it. But I feel like... Some, sometimes, too, Christians are given into what I want to call Christian fatalism. And what I mean by that is this. We say things like, oh, that's just who I am. Oh, I've always been like that. Oh, I can't help it. Oh, I don't want to get in trouble here. I think about the examples I use. But we just say things like, there's something that I know I should do, but I'll just say, oh, I've never liked doing that. In other words, in other words, we excuse ourselves from some responsibility that otherwise we know we need to do by simply saying, uh, 
I'm just not like that. Are you? When, when, when we have to give an account of our lives and the God who made you is standing before you, are you going to tell him, well, I'm, I just wasn't made like that? Is that what you're going to tell them? We cannot let, just because it's, yes, I understand some people have, or it's easier, you know, we have different proclivities, we have different interests, some things come easier to others. I get that. I think that's reality, but it's not an excuse. And so if something comes harder for me that I know I should do, guess what that means? I just, I just got to work harder at it. That's what it means. doesn't mean I'm off the hook. And this issue, and then, and then a parallel issue is this. We should take our, and related to this is, is, is Jesus' teaching about how we should, take, we should take our own sin seriously. In fact, not just that, we should, we should take our own sin the most seriously. Matthew 7, 3 and 5. 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck in your, that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So I think this is a, and so this is just, it's just important for us to remember too. Jesus is not teaching that we're not to hold people account, we're not to hold each other accountable. He's not teaching that. That's another sermon for another day. Before this, he says, you know, judge not lest you be judged. I wish I have a nickel for every time someone quoted that verse. It's easy to take that out of context because of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the Christians in Corinth, is it not those inside the church we are to judge? He says that right before he tells them to take the guy who's sleeping with his stepmom and kick him out of the church. Right? So it's not that we as Christians can't hold one another accountable for sin, but what he's saying, but what he's saying is that the, the root posture of our heart is that the sin that we should be most concerned about is our own. And when we see our own sin clearly, then, as Jesus said, when we see our own sin clearly, then actually we will be in a position to reach out to others and help someone else. But but we have to be willing to hold ourselves to the same standard that we hold other people to. And we 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 have to have our own sin list caught up, thought about, and confessed and asked for forgiveness before God before we go tromp around on other people. So, Jesus, so, the point here is this, is that James says the law is a unity. Your sin is serious because to break it at one point is to be culpable for all of it. So, the heart of the law is the unity of the law, and finally, the judgment of the law. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, in view of these things, in view of the seriousness of the law, in view of how breaking it at one point is to make one liable for all of it, how then are we supposed to live? James says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Again, he referred to it as the royal law earlier. He calls it the law of liberty here. He called it the law of liberty in uh, chapter 1, verse 25. Uh, again, likely referring to the freedom that we have in Christ from the old covenant. But nevertheless, it is even though we have freedom in Christ from the old covenant, 
We're not bound by the strictures of the Old Testament law. At the same time, we better not let law of liberty cause us to think that, that see, for some reason in our present society, we think freedom as an absence of, uh, of, uh, of moral commands. Like, I can do whatever I want. That's what freedom is. I can do whatever I want. But that's not the biblical understanding of liberty. And we know that it certainly doesn't mean the law of liberty here. Because what does it say? It says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So what the law of freedom is, is guess what? The law that's going to judge us one day. That's what James is saying. It's, it's, it's the one that's going to hold us accountable. And he says what? So speak and so act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. That means what? That means that we're to live. We are to live in conscious awareness and in view of the future judgment. That's how we're just supposed to live as Christians. I mean, it, it, just, it really just makes sense. I mean, it, it's, not, it's not that complicated. If, oh, let's say some, there's an asteroid headed to Earth, and it's going to blow the whole thing up in one year from now. If you knew that, guess what? You'd live differently. When you know something is about to happen, you live differently. All through the New Testament, all over, over and over, Jesus, the apostles, they tell us because they want us to know that a day of judgment is coming. And if you don't live in view of it, you won't be ready. It's the consistent teaching of the Bible. It surprises many to learn that the person who taught the most about hell in the Bible is Jesus. Jesus Christ. He's the one who talked the most about hell and about its reality. And there seems to be some confusion, I think, even among Christians on this issue because the Bible is actually pretty clear. Everyone will be judged. Everyone. Believers, unbelievers, everyone will be judged by God according to their works. Now, what I mean by that is this. We are not saved on the basis of works. We are not put into the category of saved by grace by God on the basis of our works. We're not. We're saved by grace through faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not saved on the basis of works. However, our lives will be evaluated on the basis of the fruit we bore. And the life we lived. Because I also believe, if you read the Bible carefully, that we have good warrant to believe that there are varying levels of punishment and reward in hell and heaven. And so we will be judged. So everyone, believer, unbeliever alike, we will be judged on the basis of our works. If we haven't trusted in Christ, there'll be varying levels of punishment in hell. And if we have trust in Christ, there'll be various levels of reward in heaven. For everyone, everyone will be judged. And I think this is quite clear. Romans 2, 6 and following. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. 
For God, God shows no partiality. See, this text is especially appropriate in the context of James here because God doesn't show partiality, and neither should you. God will show perfect justice. All the things that we cared about to today, all the things that we overlooked because so-and-so, I like them, or they were of my particular party, or they were the color of my skin, whatever, all the things. God won't show partiality. He's going to see it all clearly because he sees down to the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. And he will render to each one according to what they've done. 2 Corinthians 5.10. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul is writing to Christians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It will happen. It's going to happen. Jesus Christ, Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. We are to live in view of the end. That's why Jesus, Jesus makes no, this isn't a big deal to him. He encourages you to live in view of the end and in view of the reward that God has promised to those who love him. When Jesus says, store your, tre- when Jesus says, store your treasure in heaven, why is he telling you that? Why would he tell you to live now in such a way that you're storing treasure not here on earth in material things, but in heaven by doing good to others in the name of Jesus Christ? Why would he tell you to do that? Because it'll be there waiting for you when you get there. He wants your greatest reward. The problem, the, our problem is not that we want, we, do, we want reward too much. The problem is we don't want it enough. We want, we, want all, we want all of our reward in the, wrong, in the wrong place. We want it here and now. And God says, you can't have it here and now. If you get it here and now, you won't keep it. You, put it, you send it ahead of you, you'll keep it forever. We are to live in view of the end. It's not a joke. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's not a fantasy. Paul said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There will be a day when the sky splits open. And the Bible says the whole earth will mourn on account of the wrath of the Lamb. And everyone who ever mocked Christianity will be in big trouble. And everyone who ever thought they got away with it, whatever it was, they'll realize they won't get away with it. But everyone who lived in view and in fear and in awe and adoration of God and in, and, in, and in so doing, and in so doing, they loved and they served others. And they did it not for praise, but they did it in secret. So that no one even knew that they were doing these things except for God. When he comes, when the sky splits down the middle, and every eye sees him, they'll receive their reward. We're to live in view of the end. We will all see Jesus Christ, eyes, flames of fire. I want you to just think about that for a second. What are you going to say? 
Regal Saito. It's the time to reflect and to think, man, am I loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? If not, how can I? What can I do right now? Today's the day. Today's the day to say, hey, I'm not, I'm going to stop wasting it. I don't want to waste anymore. Today's the day. Not anymore, God. I want to be able to say, when I stand before you, like the Apostle Paul say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. So speak and so act, James says, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And finally, he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. One of the great, one of the great categories with which we will be judged in our lives is were we merciful to others as God was merciful to us? Did we love others as Jesus Christ have, has loved us? Did we care for others as he loved us? If God held against you everything you hold against others, how would you fare? How, how would you fare? If God held you to the same standard every time you ever said, I can't believe they did that. Every time they said, you see what they did? Every time you said, oh, I can't believe that. If God held you to every standard, every time you held someone else or something else, he held you to that same standard, how would you do? Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus talked about this, and with this we'll close. Jesus told this parable. He said, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's like saying a bajillion, bajillion dollars. It's an unbelievable amount of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused. And went and put him in prison till he should pay the debt. When this fellow saw, when the, when the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? As I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Judgment is without mercy to him who shows no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. If you are merciful in your heart towards others, not, not morally lax, not... Not, not morally soft, but merciful, patient, long-suffering, pleading with people, urging them, loving them in spite of their sin to come, 
return, repent, being for them and not against them, merciful, not holding grudges, not holding bitterness, not holding hatred against them, urging them, pleading with them, merciful towards them as God has been merciful toward us. Mercy will triumph over judgment. Jesus Christ came and he got up on that old rugged cross and bore the judgment of God to sinners like you and me. Why? So that mercy could triumph over judgment. If you know him, if you believe in him, if you trust him, if you love him, mercy will triumph over judgment for you. And you'll be in God's family forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us through Jesus Christ. 